Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and welcome to New Southern Garden, of course. I'm your gardening pal, Nathan Wilson, and I'm so glad that you've decided to join us. Ah, it has been another good week for growing things, has it not? It's been hot. It's been warm. And, of course, that does um, encourage plants to grow, which is good. But also, like I've said before, encourages other things to grow that our plants uh, may not be too fond of, like insects and disease, of course, and so always be scouting, always be looking for those issues as we go through the summer, because that's really when plants suffer the most. <laughs> and, you know, you can look at things as, well, these insects and these diseases, they're living creatures too. Uh, they have to eat and consume things, and of course, just like people, we don't, uh, these creatures don't make their own energy, but plants do, so plants are always Plants are always uh, defending themselves, having to defend themselves or deal with whatever's consuming them. So these creatures, whether it be a human eating tomatoes and lettuce or whether it be uh, insects eating tomatoes and lettuce, (laughs) they always have to be uh, uh, ready to sort of either try to fight or they can't really flight. They can't really run away. So in the garden... You know, we're growing these plants for us, whether they're vegetables so that we can have some fresh homegrown produce or if it's things that are ornamental so that we can feed our souls with those beautiful colors of flowers and textures of leaves, colors of leaves. So be on the lookout. Always be scouting. And remember, we never want to hit the nuclear option when we are dealing with insects and pests. Uh, Sometimes when we see one or two insects we kind of get crazy and just want them all gone but the reality is is we've got to set a threshold for the kind of damage that is done in our garden and a threshold is a threshold is sort of like a, a limit like how far can you let these insects populate or uh, how much damage can they do before we really need to do something uh, you know on this program we take sort of an uh, ex- extension service approach. We want to present things to you that you have choices of as far as controlling pests in the landscape. And the first step, of course, is scouting and identifying problems, looking for issues that may, uh, or things that may become an issue. But then when you get into controlling them, you know, there are chemical controls available. And I'm not a cheerleader of these by any means. They may or may not work for you. But there are also organic controls. There are things that you can do organically. And not just a, a, a product that is organic or natural, but also practices. Practices. Things that you do that will help discourage pests to become such a problem. 
in your gardens and landscape. And I think that that is one of the most critical things, is the practicing of horticultural things in order to prevent, uh, maybe help eliminate, but the prevention is, well, I think I said it a few weeks ago, didn't I? Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I guess I'll kind of paraphrase, but an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And if we know the insects, if we know the diseases that have been a problem in the landscape or in the vegetable garden or in the, the fruit orchard, if we know the things that have been a problem before, then we can look forward to preventing them from becoming a problem maybe the next season. So keeping a good record and knowing, taking photos. I mean, we do live in the 21st century where cameras are so easily accessible, right? They're in our pockets. We have a calculator in our pocket. We have an encyclopedia in our pocket. These cell phones and smart devices are quite helpful, and they're very helpful in the landscape. So documenting year by year, season by season, week by week, day by day, uh, doing these things in advance of the next season is critical in order to know what you dealt with before so that maybe you can do things to prevent going forward. And when we look at the history of horticulture, this has always been the case. This has always been the case that gardeners and agrarians, agriculturalists, these folks who have lived and gone on before us, They dealt with some of the same issues, but they didn't do it in the 21st century. Maybe the 20th, maybe the 19th, the 18th, 17th, as far back as we can go uh, with man's connection to plants and growing things, gardening, agriculture. And today, I thought that we would go back in history a bit. You know, I think in gardening, sometimes we get too distracted by the new plants, by uh, the individual plant, if you will, or a collection of plants, and all the new things that are coming out, maybe new gadgets and gizmos to make our life easier in the garden. Uh, But I think sometimes we fail to think about the history of these plants, uh, including the people who have helped us get to where we are today. And so today, I want to talk about an individual and a a book that he wrote uh, a long time ago. And this individual actually has more connections maybe to modern gardening than you might think. Um, We're going to talk about the turn of the century, but not the turn of this century, the turn of the last century. So right at the 1900s, we have a book that I'm going to be working through with you today, just some excerpts from 1899. And it's called The Horticulturalist Rule Book. The Horticulturalist Rule Book. And it's written by a gentleman named Liberty Hyde Bailey. Now, he is part of history. He has passed away. Uh, He passed away about the mid-1900s. But Liberty Hyde Bailey was a big horticulturalist and a promoter of the agrarian lifestyle. He was definitely a guy who has probably little known in the South. He did a lot of his work uh, up North, but the things that he did over a hundred years ago uh, definitely trickles down to us today. Some of the terms, we're going to talk about a term that he coined 
that you that I use on this show nearly every week and you are familiar with anytime you go shopping in a landscape nursery uh, or garden center. But um, I think that going forward, you know, in addition to talking about plants and talking about practices and, and things that uh, are timely, I think that we ought to, every now and then, once in a blue moon, talk about the people, uh, the histories of horticulture, maybe some documents that we can find and uh, sort of relate to what we're doing today. But Liberty Hyde Bailey, well, let's just go ahead and I'll give you a brief uh, biography of who he is and kind of what he has done. Uh, but Bailey was an American horticulturalist, as I've already said, and a reformer of the rural, rural life. He was co-founder of the American Society for Horticultural Science. And as an uh, energetic reformer during the progressive era, he was instrumental in starting agricultural extension services, which you have in your county, and the 4-H movement which you probably also have in your county. He was part of the nature study movement, the parcel post and rural electrification, which you probably have electricity in your county as well. Uh, But he's considered the father of rural sociology and rural uh, journalism. He was born in 1858, March 15th, the Ides of March, 1858, in South Haven, Michigan. And he was the third son of farmers, his father, Liberty Sr., and Sarah. Uh, but he did cross paths in 1876 with Lucy Millington, who encouraged him uh, to get into botany and also mentored him. And, you know, we can be like Lucy Millington today and encourage the young folks to get into horticulture, get into agriculture, get into growing something in your backyard. But then Bailey entered the Michigan Agricultural College, which is now known as Michigan State University, in 1877. Now, he graduated in 1882. He did take a year off because of some health reasons. But the next year after graduation, he became an assistant to the renowned botanist Asa Gray of Harvard University. Now, this was arranged by a professor at Michigan Agricultural College at the time, James uh, William James Beale. Now, Bailey spent two years with Gray, as his herbarium assistant. Now, herbarium is uh, where folks will go out and collect samples of plants, press them, dry them, and keep them as a record and document. It's great for uh, uh, teaching the next generation what plants are what, and also examining and trying to help identify things. But anyhow, he did all this work in botany. Uh, He did get married uh, to Annette Smith, who was the daughter of a Michigan cattle breeder. Uh, and then he had two daughters, Sarah May and Ethel Zoe. But in 1884, Bailey returned to Michigan Agricultural College to become professor and chair of the Horticulture and Landscape Gardening Department, which established the first horticultural department in the country. Uh, then four years later, in 1888, he moved to Cornell University in New York, where he assumed the chair of Practical and Experimental Horticulture. Then he was elected an Associate Fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences at 1900, and he co- uh, founded the College of Agriculture in 1904, uh, where he was able to secure public funding for it. That's probably a good thing, being able to, to fund a, a college of agriculture. But he was dean of what was known then as New York State College of Agriculture from 1903 to 1913, a decade long. And in 1908, he was appointed chairman of the National Commission on Country Life by President Theodore Roosevelt. 
The 1909 report by this commission called for rebuilding a great agricultural civilization in America. And in 1913, he retired to become a private scholar and devote more time to social and political issues. And then in 1917, he was elected a member of the United States National Academy of Sciences. But Bailey was also a big writer. And I do have uh, some original print books of his. I I really do like Liberty Hyde Bailey. He's one of my heroes of horticulture. Uh, But I also have some some reprints. And there were some things he he wrote back in the early 1900s, late 1800s, like the book we'll be talking about today. But one of the biggest ones is the Cyclopedia of American Agriculture and the Encyclopedia of American Horticulture. It's several volumes long. Uh, He's written and edited the Rural Science uh, magazine-like, the Rural Textbook, uh, a document called Garden Craft and Young Folks Library series of manuals. Some of these were used in classrooms to educate uh, young students about agriculture and horticulture and growing things, something we see very little of today. That would have been incorporated into their regular curriculum. But uh, he was the founding editor of journals like Country Life in America and the Cornell Countryman. He dominated the field of horticulture le- uh, literature during the time, writing some 65 books which together sold more than a million copies and there weren't as many people buying books back then so that is a a lot of books to sell but he had scientific works Uh, of course he had uh, works to help explain botany to lay lay people people who weren't in the field but kind of simplification of botanical terminology he did write a collection of poetry and edited more than a hundred books by other authors and published at least 1300 articles and over a hundred papers in pure taxonomy which of course is the classification of living organisms but here's the part that is going to draw us closer to, to bailey some 100 years plus after he uh, has uh, done most of his work, he is the one who coined the term cultivar. Remember, we talk about cultivars. That's a cultivated variety. That word is a combination of those two words, cultivated variety. So all the hydrangeas we, we grow are usually cultivars. They're not the regular species like we would find in the wild, but they have been selected and bred and they have been used and cultivated by people. They are varieties that have been cultivated and we have Liberty Hyde Bailey to thank for that. So, He did die on Christmas Day in 1954 at the ripe old age of 96. But when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about his horticulturalist rule book and some of the things that he was educating people about that maybe have no use today, but some of them still may be helpful and effective. Hang on tight. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at NewSouthernGarden.com where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone. So get social with the New Southern Garden family and let's grow well.
So, gang, before the break, here on New Southern Garden, we were talking about a gentleman, really one of my horticultural heroes, if you will. His name is Liberty Hyde Bailey. Even though he's not from the South, which is not a big deal, is it? (laughs) He's still uh, a promoter of the agrarian life, right? We talked about how he helped to push along because he was living during the time that the Extension Service, which, of course, you can find your local county agent. That's the Extension Service. Uh, You can find them alive and well today, helping not just homeowners, but, of course, um, uh, farmers, whether you're in animal farming or plant farming, if you will. And he was there around the time when all of that got started and was a big promoter and influencer of making sure that um, college uh, research was focused and geared on helping folks who live in an agrarian lifestyle. Of course, making... uh, coming up with information and uh, research, showing folks better crops, uh, better solutions, better practices. All of these things really started going around the turn of the 20th century in the early 1900s. Definitely over 100 years ago today. I think it was around 1914 or so when the uh, Extension Service was uh, first initiated. And so with that being said, even though he's not from the South, and even though he's not from our time period, he passed away in the 1950s, but he still has a legacy that is helpful to us. And of course, uh, he, he did. He was very um, busy writing information and books uh, and papers and articles that we could still access today now since his writing. Some of these things have been superseded. Some of these things may be uh, not safe. (laughs) Uh, But we've got to place Liberty Hyde Bailey in history. We've got to place him. And you've got to remember that because he passed away in 1950, um, he really, the tail end of his life, when he would have been in his 80s, I guess, uh, the tail end of his life is when the Green Revolution happened, which is what all of us live under now. So the Green Revolution, just a quick summary, is where um, you will hear names like Norman Borlaug. Of course, he developed uh, very productive strains or cultivars, which of course is a term that comes from Liberty Hyde Bailey, but cultivars of wheat, which helped to expand wheat production. And that the series of steps he took in the wheat industry was then replicated throughout all other industries. Uh, of course, this is all happening around World War II or so. Uh, in addition to breeding and uh, expanding crops, there was also the chemical aspect. Yes, you know, we don't want to use chemicals when we don't need to. Um, the reality is, is that because of World War II, uh, using chemicals in warfare turned into figuring out new chemistries and other chemistries that then, of course, were used in big agriculture. Now, of course, this to me is more of an ethical issue that you and I have to decide for ourselves. But for Liberty Hyde Bailey's life, pre-Green Revolution, we've got to remember that there were really no chemical stores, no chemical companies. From my own grandmother's perspective, who would have been in her 20s when Liberty Hyde Bailey passed away in the 50s, she used to tell me, you know, from 
say, a pharmaceutical standpoint, she said, we didn't really have doctors. We didn't have medicine. We had aspirin. And that was about the only medicines we had growing up. So we're looking at a world that is literally coming out of, you know, the 1800s, still going that way. Now, of course, electricity was coming around. And as we've already read, Liberty Hyde Bailey was a big promoter of getting electricity into the rural parts of America. Uh, But there was not the kind of technologies that you and I are used to. There weren't the kind of choices that you and I have uh, maybe an opportunity, if you want to look at it that way, opportunities to make. So they literally were, I mean, if you're looking at uh, the late 1800s, of course, Liberty Hyde Bailey, born in, born in the 1870s, uh, uh, 50s, sorry, uh, but doing his work in the 70s and 80s. If you look at that time period, it probably didn't look much different than maybe the 1700s. Yes, there was trains and locomotives, but there weren't like vehicles yet. There were no cars. Not at that time. So put him in the proper placement of history. And when we go through uh, some of the topics in his book, the Horticulturalist Handbook, just think about the world he lived in. He didn't have a box store uh, like you may do in your town where they have a garden center and you can just buy bottles of things on the shelves. So, you had to do a lot of DIYs, which we can still do today, right? But of course, even then, some of the information they had about DIYs may not have been complete. We may have found out more in the past 120 whatever years. And that needs to be considered too, that some of the things and techniques that Liberty Hyde Bailey uh, was educating people about may have been superseded they may have now find uh, no place (laughs) to be utilized because some of these things that he was educating people about might be surprising to you and I'm going to start with one of the most most surprising because of course you and I are looking at this information from the 21st century standpoint but um, in his Horticulturist Rule Book, Liberty Hyde Bailey goes through a number of things like insecticides. Now, today, even that term, we look at it much differently than Liberty Hyde Bailey would have. Nowadays, we think of insecticide and we see a big bottle with a skull and crossbones on it, right? But back in those days, there really were no pre-made insecticides. Remember, the chemical revolution, if you will, didn't come around till the, the, the 40s or so. So what we're going to be looking at are essentially some quite natural, natural solutions, but some that are probably extreme for our day and age. Some of them are not natural. I'll tell you that. But I think it would be, uh, it's just a cool piece of history, horticultural history to look at. So in his horticulturist, horticulturist rule book, uh, he goes through insecticides and insects that cause problems, how to prevent them, how to remedy them. Uh, he goes through diseases, uh, diseases that cause problems, how to prevent them, how to remedy them. He even talks about mammals, rabbits, squirrels, birds. It's interesting, he doesn't really talk about deer. Maybe uh, that long ago, deer weren't as big of a problem as they are today. Uh, but then he even talks about how to grow lawns and how to prevent weeds in lawns, how to deal with weeds, things like that. And it's whether we can use all this information or whether we should, uh, it's still a cool piece of horticultural history. So, 
when it comes to dealing with insects, the first, it's, it's all listed alphabetically. And catch this. The first entry for insecticides is arsenic. We need a long pause for that. <laughs> because there is no way that you and I would probably even contemplate using arsenic in it. But I will say that because there were really no other solutions, it's in his book. But the first the very first entry to this arsenic option is that it is considered an unsafe insecticide. Um, he says one to two grains or less is fatal to a human adult. 30 grains usually kill a horse. 10 grains kill a cow. And one grain or less is usually fatal to a dog. And then, of course, he does give options about... Uh, using milk and eggs, sugar and magnesia in milk uh, as helping someone who might have become affected by it. But you see, this is the kind of world that he would have been living in. Most likely, people were using arsenic to destroy insects and probably unsafely. So thank goodness that things have come along so far, flash forward 120 whatever years, and we see that uh, at least people are giving us information, right? They're at least giving us information on safety. Of course, you can find safety data sheets for all kinds of products as including water any kind of chemical compound and water is a chemical uh, it's quite safe but everything has information now and we ought to be reading that so when we get back from this break we'll continue talking about some horticultural history came to life. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So, gang, today on New Southern Garden, we're talking a little horticultural history. Some of this might be quite interesting. It is for me, at least. But at other times, some of it is a bit shocking. Of course, we've been talking about Liberty Hyde Bailey, sort of, uh, I almost say an unsung hero. We don't sing his praises anymore, but he definitely did a lot around the turn of the century, the 20th century, uh, 1900s, the late 1800s and early part of the 1900s to help advance rural education, to help advance agrarian lifestyle, and of course promote uh, things like 4-H, the Cooperative Extension Service, uh, which came around in the 19-teens and has left behind a lot of writing. And so today we are looking at one of his books, The Horticulturalist Rulebook. Now, before the break, we were talking about how we need to place him in his part of history, where uh, he would not be familiar with the world that we are. The technologies, some of the advancements that have happened since his passing uh, were unknown to him. And so when we look at his literature, as we probably should with all historical documents, is to place it at the appropriate time. It's hard for us sometimes to look at history through our 21st century eyes. But when we try to put our, as we say, uh, put our feet in somebody else's shoes, uh, it might make more sense. Before the break, we were talking about one of Liberty Hyde Bailey's entries into 
uh, garden insecticides was arsenic. And you can tell by the writing, he's not a big promoter of it. He calls it unsafe, which was very nice of him to do. Uh, but apparently, it would we can kind of assume that people were using that. And so he was trying to make statements to probably sway people away. So with that being said, we're not necessarily promoting any kind of chemical use. Uh, we're not being cheerleaders, if you will, for using chemicals in the landscape. Like I said before, I, this show takes the approach that your county agent might to look at the research, modern research, and give you options that then you can choose. There are certain organic, naturally occurring compounds that people can spray, apply, utilize in their garden spaces, uh, which may be considered quite safe to some degree. But everything, of course, has potential to be dangerous anytime we're bringing in some kind, some kind of chemical compound. So that is up for you to decide. What we're looking at today is what might have been encouraged or useful uh, at the turn of the 20th century in 1900. In addition to maybe applications, sprays or uh, slathers, some of the terminology in here is kind of outdated too, I would say, or, or different, uh, but practices are a thing. Check this out, for instance, burning. Burning was considered a type of insecticide control, insecticidal control, and in his entry he says larvae, which live or feed in webs like the tent caterpillar which you might be starting to see soon in your own landscape and the fall webworm which you might be starting to see very soon may be burned with a torch the lamp or torch used in campaign parades finds its most efficient use here instead of using a, a torch in a parade for a political campaign he says its most efficient use is to be used by burning the webs and destroying the creatures that create them. It's very interesting. Again, did he have um, technology or access to Bacillus thuringiensis? Now, that, of course, is a bacteria, uh, organic approved, and it is a bacteria that only uh, destroys caterpillars and certain worms, larvae. And so did he know that then? doesn't sound like it, but it is something, of course, that... Um, that we could use today that is very selective and again is a biological control. Now, some of the things that might surprise you other than arsenic, I found kerosene to be very surprising. He talks about using kerosene, kerosene emulsion, kerosene and condensed milk emulsions, and kerosene and water emulsion. I don't think that we would necessarily uh, be using kerosene to control insects on our plants. Very interesting. Very interesting. We won't go into details about that. But here is one that is quite natural. Here's a good natural insecticide. It's called the lime spray. A lime spray. And it's where you uh, slake one half peck. And of course, these are measurements that are Definitely not used very often in our culture, but uh, slake one half peck or a peck of lime in a barrel of water, straining the lime as it enters the barrel to prevent its clogging the pump. Apply a spray until the tree appears as if whitewashed. Now, he does mention that this can be used to control like rose chafer, uh, certain beetles perhaps, and that is just lime lime and water. Now, of course, you and I may use lime to sweeten our soils. 
we have a, a very acidic soil, we use lime to sweeten the soils, make them a little more alkaline to get them at the uh, pH level that plants can then um, absorb nutrients from. But lime spray, how simple that might be. Now, you don't normally see that uh, in a bottle at the box stores, do you? You don't. It's something that you may have to concoct yourself. But still, he, you can see that Liberty Hyde Bailey using ingredients and products that, um, that may have been very customary at the time, very accessible at the time. And of course, lime is quite still accessible today. Lye. Lye wash. Now, you and I don't keep bottles of lye. Probably. Some may. But lye itself is not a normal occurring um, compound in your washroom anymore. We usually use some kind of detergent, right? But lye was used in different ways. A lye wash, a lye and sulfur wash, a lye and whale oil soap wash to control certain insects. thought that was very interesting too. Now, let's move on to using plant material to protect other plants from insect. How about this entry here, snuff? Now, of course, we're talking about tobacco, tobacco snuff, finely ground tobacco uh, leaves. Uh, Liberty Hyde Bailey says that snuff may be used to kill plant lice upon houseplants and in other places where fumigation or spraying cannot be employed. Blow the snuff lightly on the plants. Tobacco, using tobacco. And, of course, we know that tobacco has the... Um, Chemical compound nicotine, which, of course, uh, would probably be the active thing working here. Now, with that being said, there are some modern chemicals that we really don't need to be promoting too much of, especially when we're considering uh, the decline of bees. And that is any compound that falls in the neonicotinoid group. Now, the neonicotinoid, of course, you hear that nicotine uh, uh whatever, you hear that symbol, s syllable in there, I'm losing my train of thought, and so it's based on naturally occurring nicotine in tobacco, but of course it's been constructed in the lab, and there are some research that show that uh, this neonicotinoid is not necessarily good for um, certain insects that we might want to be promoting. So again, this is the ethical decision. We can look at history and how they may have dealt with insect control. We can look at the modern organic controls that have been approved by the USDA um, as organic production guidelines go. And of course, the same government that tells us what is safe for organic production also tells you say is what is safe for chemical production. So my statement is always, if you trust your government, then you, you, you trust your expert. You trust your expert, you choose your information, right? So in addition to using um, tobacco snuff, there would be concoctions of soap and tobacco, where Bailey says dissolve eight pounds of the best soft soap in 12 gallons of rainwater, and when cold, add one gallon of strong tobacco liqueur, or liquor, I guess. And he says that that does help with plant lice, Plant lice would probably be very small insects. Uh, it's a dated term probably, but of course there would be things like uh, aphids to some degree, but maybe white flies and maybe mealybugs. Maybe mealybugs. It's probably grouped into there. Now, how about soda? Soda. This is well, washing soda. I don't know if um, 
it's really detergent. I think we'd have to look back, right, and actually go with an old school washing soda. But dissolve two pounds of washing soda and one ounce of bitter aloes. Aloe. Um, and when cold, add one gallon of water. Dip the plants into the solution and lay them on their sides for a short time, and the insects will drop off. Uh, it says syringe the plants with clean, tepid water and return to the house. This would be if you had indoor plants, maybe, or greenhouse plants. Um, maybe not a solution so much for plants planted in the ground because, of course, there's the application of this washing soda and aloe mixture. And then, of course, laying them over um, to let it drip off and let the bugs fall off. And then he does make it clear to wash them off. So, of course, that sort of alludes that we need to get the washing soda and aloe off the leaves or we might uh, have some problems with the plant itself. Now, just like using tobacco, and there was several different ways he used tobacco as a tea. Uh, he says to boil the stems or the dust uh, thoroughly and strain it, then add cold water until the, con the uh, concoction contains two gallons of liquid to one pound of tobacco, and then you have a liquid tobacco tea that then could be applied. Um, of course, tobacco is a plant that is, um, uh, does have some naturally occurring compounds that can... Uh, affect these small insect life. Uh, is it organic? I would say it is because, of course, it's coming straight from a plant. But here's one that he uses uh, that I, we might need to be wary of. This concoction, if you will, comes from a plant called the white hellebore. Now, reading that, I was not familiar with white hellebore. The very first time a few years ago when I read that, what is this plant? Because when I think of hellebore, I do think of helleborus or Lenten rose. But that is not the plant at all. Uh, the plant itself is Veratrum album, which is from Europe. It has a I think a very pretty flower. It's got this huge kind of panicle of star-like white flowers. But you have to know that this European white hellebore is a poisonous plant. All parts of the plant are poisonous. Now, if we use plants in the landscape that have certain toxicity, we need to be very aware of those toxicities. The research I did about the white hellebore uh, back in the 80s, apparently some um, company was using this in some kind of product that went in your nose or on your face, and there was some poisonings that way. So, you may not want to be growing this plant uh, in your landscape, of course, maybe in the 1900s without other ways to control plants, uh, pests on plants. It may have been sort of culturally acceptable. Uh, if dogs eat it, could be um, something to be concerned with if young children are near it. But the idea was that you took the root of the hellebore and made a powder from it. And then the powder is applied both dry and in water. Uh, in the dry state, it's usually applied without dilution. But if you, um, if you put it in water, you'd use an ounce of the powder uh, mixed with three gallons of water. And you sort of, and it says that an ounce of glue or thin flour paste is sometimes added to make that uh, compound adhere. So the reality here, folks, is that when we're looking at horticultural history, we've got to sort of take it with a modern knowledge, with modern knowledge. 
these people didn't have the uh, research that we may have today. Obviously, certain plants are poisonous and can affect certain forms of life, like insects, on bad insects on our plants. But in some cases, you think about it, some of these are quite natural ways to do it. You still got to be careful. When we get back, we'll talk about more of this horticultural history. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the new Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, today on New Southern Garden, we are talking a bit of horticultural history. I think that sometimes, you know, we get a little too caught up in the beauty of plants and some of the new plants that are always coming out every year. There's a whole slew of them these days. And sometimes it's refreshing to step back and look at some of the people, places, practices maybe that uh, got us to where we are today. And I think that in to some degree, a lot of the old ways are lost because we don't study the old ways. Like the old saying goes, those who fail to uh, learn their history are doomed to repeat it. And there may be some practical things that we can find from the old ways, if you will. Uh, Of course, we live in a world where there is information at our fingertips. There is all kinds of options and products available, new things. Uh, But what about some of the things that um, maybe have just gotten lost, have just gotten lost? And today we are kind of focusing on a gentleman named Liberty Hyde Bailey, Great A horticulturalist, I would say. You read his books. Now, of course, you got to place him in history. you got to place him at the beginning, say, of the 20th century. That was about the middle of his life there. But um, in, in reality, uh, he grew up in a different world, a different time. But if you look at what he was trying to do, he was trying to promote an agrarian lifestyle, trying to promote and help those folks who lived in rural America. And so by writing and researching and creating a college of agriculture, by creating or helping to create rather and promote um, and kind of being in a political realm, if you will, of getting the United States government to uh, get the extension service going and 4-H programs like that. Uh, He was a big player. He was a big player. Uh, Before the break, we were talking about some of his insect controls. Some of them were naturally occurring, derived from plant material. Some of them, like arsenic and kerosene, seem a bit scary, a bit dangerous. Uh, But it was a time before uh, modern times. (laughs) And the same goes for some of his disease controls. And I thought we'd spend a few moments talking about some of the things that he was uh, writing about 
when it comes to disease control. Now, the first one here is actually quite historical. It predates him uh, to some degree, uh, or maybe around the same century he was born in, but it's called the Bordeaux mixture. And the Bordeaux mixture is something that is still taught in uh, horticultural classes today. Uh, the Bordeaux mixture is really quite simple. It's a mixture of copper sulfate and quick lime. Of course, it's used as a fungicide, and it's used in vineyards, fruit farms, gardens to prevent certain infestations like powdery mildew, uh, downy mildew, and other fungal problems. It's usually sprayed on plants as a preventative treatment. That's the key word here. Most fungicides, particularly this organic option, the um, copper and uh, lime, uh, is got to be used preventatively before the problem actually occurs. Uh, once the fungus becomes established, its mode of action is really ineffective. So, back in the 19th century, in France, it was invented in the Bordeaux region of France, um, and it was, if it's applied in too large of quantities, though, like over and over, year after year, the copper in the mixture does become a pollutant. Keep in mind that copper is a heavy metal, and heavy metal is very good at helping to prevent the development of fungus, but of course, um, too much copper is not a good thing. Uh, it is promoted as an organic pesticide, of course. Uh, however, the Europe European Union has decided that it's, um, well, it's illegal in most parts of the Europe European Union, even though that's where it came from. It originated. So to Liberty Hyde Bailey's Bordeaux mixture uh, entry here, he says, dissolve six pounds of copper sulfate in four or more gallons of water in another vessel, slake four pounds of quick lime in a small quantity of water. When the latter mixture has cooled, it is poured into the copper solution, uh, care being taken to mix the fluids thoroughly by constant stirring, and water is added to make about 40 gallons of mixture. Stir before applying. Stronger mixtures were at first recommended, but they uh, are not now used. Probably because even at that time, they were figuring out too much copper is not a good thing. Now, you can find copper, uh, maybe even elemental copper, um, or it's usually in a form like this, copper uh, sulfate, uh, because the sulfur actually has quite effective properties against fungus as well. Now, copper is naturally occurring. Sulfur is naturally occurring. Um, and the USDA does have it on their approved list of um, fungicides for organic gardening and organic production. But I mentioned earlier that practices are also part of controlling pests. And one of his entries here for controlling pests is crop rotation or the rotation of crops. And it's one of the most effective, he says, most effective and practicable means of heading off fungus diseases. It may be applied to strawberries for the leaf blight by fruiting the patch but a single year and to blackberries and raspberries by destroying the patch after two or three crops have been harvested. So the idea here is to prevent diseases. That's what I was getting at at the beginning of the program in our introduction there, uh, or monologue maybe. Of course, this whole show is a monologue, but uh, at the beginning I said that being on the lookout for problems, documenting what problems you have, and of course knowing that they could be a problem next year. Rotating your crops, not growing the same crop in the same space, the same soil, year after year, is one of the most effective means of preventing plant disease. And of course, in addition to that, I would add to Liberty Hyde Bailey's here, uh, 
uh, discussion is to san- uh, sanitize your fields, clean them up, get rid of any diseased material, burn the diseased material, uh, or relocate it. You could bury it, but I like the option of burning it in the fall. And that way you are keeping a cleaner soil and a cleaner garden space. Now, the Grissom liquid. Now, this is very interesting because the Grissom liquid actually comes from Europe too uh, at Versailles as well. It's quite similar, quite similar to the Bordeaux mixture, but... As Liberty Hyde Bailey says, uh, it's prepared by boiling three pounds of sulfur and lime in six gallons of water until reduced to two gallons. Now, when settled, pour off the clear liquid and bottle it. Now, I did look up the Grissom uh, mixture, if you will, Grissom liquid, and that is exactly how it's described in other research, is to pour off this clear liquid. When you use the clear liquid, you mix one pint of clear liquid into 100 parts of water. This may help with European mildew and powdery mildew uh, on vining plants, and really, the mildews are here. So, again, we're looking at two compounds, or one compound, but uh, the sulfur and the lime. Our little mixture here is sulfur, which is naturally occurring, and of course, lime, uh, which we would apply into our soils. So, looking at some of the things that he is uh, encouraging or just educating people about using, uh, you see that they're all quite basic, and many of these are still around and used in organic gardening today. One last one is iron sulfate. Iron sulfate. Now, you will find iron sulfate as a fertilizer to green up lawns. The iron will help to encourage greening in any plant material but the iron sulfate or as he says sulfate of iron he says it's a simple solution in water of four to eight pounds to the gallon to be used only as a wash before the buds swell again preventing before the buds open he's using this iron sulfate as a preventative so these are just some of the things that i found interesting in uh, liberty high bailey's the horticulturalist rule book and i think that if we were to take a closer look at some of the older ways we still have to screen them through our 21st century eyes but i think that there's definitely a benefit to looking because many of these were quite basic and simple things not complex compounds you have to make the decision on how you want to garden in your landscape well for new southern garden and wrwh my name is nathan wilson i hope you stay well and grow well Give it that go. we'll see you next week Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. 